Their paths crossed like two hot wires. We are just about the friendliest folks you'd ever want to meet. That's Bonnie. I'm sorry, I was looking for Maude. Everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. That woman, she took my car. This is Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast, with Xenia Yarosh and Eleanor Kagan. This is Bonnie and Maude, the film podcast. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. And today on the show, we discuss reality TV. Is it the junk food of television, or is there something deeper and essentially human to be found in this processed and highly stylized version of reality? To help us parse through these questions, we have not one but two fabulous guests. Welcome Allegra Oxborough and Rachel Michelle Fernandez. Thank you. Hi, happy to be here. Rachel, you worked in reality TV for how long? It's been a little bit over two years now. For most of those two years, I was uh, working on one show, which is Four Weddings on TLC. Thank you. It's a wedding competition show, which uh, most people, when I tell them that, are like, huh? But uh, it started as a show in the UK and then was brought to the US. It's four brides that are already have their weddings planned, and we put them together, four strangers, and they each attend each other's weddings and sort of rate them based on different criteria. At the end, after a sort of weighted point system, whoever has the highest points wins a $10,000 honeymoon vacation package. Not bad. Yeah. So the competition is there for people wanting to win the prize, but there's definitely that element of women who are very curious about other women and also just, you know, people that want to be on TV. (laughs) And the company that you work for also produces Say Yes to the Dress. Maybe I should backtrack for a second, because I think a a thing that a lot of people don't realize about when they think of television, they think, oh, I love that show, TLC. You work for TLC. Most networks don't actually make their own content. So any given network will work with a variety of production companies to make a variety of shows. My particular office uh, that makes four weddings in in the U.S., also makes a very popular show called The First 48. That's a true uh, crime series. So here I am sitting at my desk, and I'm on the phone with brides, reaching out to them, finding out if they're a good fit for the show, asking them questions. Tell me about your centerpieces. Tell me what you're most excited about your wedding. Oh, a cupcake station rather than a cake? (laughs) That's unique. A photo booth. I love a photo booth and a chocolate fountain. Meanwhile, (laughs) to my left is a room, an editing room, where there's literally just monitor after monitor of footage of dead bodies (laughs) and police detectives. So it couldn't have been more different. So I, I found that to be a very interesting peek into the reality world when I first started. And you're touching on something that I'm that we're all very interested to know more about, and that's that you work in the casting process. Uh, so we'll find out more about that shortly. But Allegra, Hello. you actually pitched us this idea to do a show on reality TV. So where does your fascination with it lie? My fascination with reality TV uh, lies in like the storytelling of it. As somebody who's learning how to edit and manipulate stories, like as a radio producer, I really like piece apart the ways that the editors of reality shows do that, particularly things like uh, when is a character introduced in such and such light and how does that develop over the season and how are those choices made and how are the confessionals sliced apart. So I like that and I generally watch TV alone, so... I think I'm a little weird in that, but I uh, I kind of just get nerdy about it. 
Cool. Obviously, the spectrum of reality TV is massive. So for this discussion, we're mostly focusing on this idea of reality versus simulated reality on TV and how that plays out with our feelings about the worth of our own lives, obviously, because we're watching this, it ends up making us think about ourselves, um, how we spend our time, our successes and failures, etc. And along the way, Allegra, this was your idea. Maybe we can come up with a couple lessons um, from reality TV that we can apply to our own lives. So ladies, if you feel a lesson coming on, just <laughs> shout it out and um, we'll see what we have. Ksenia, what does your reality TV diet consist of? Allegra just <laughs> mentioned that she generally watches television by herself. And the thing is, like, I was thinking back to watching reality shows, which I don't so much anymore, not having a television. But I feel like most of my memories of watching reality TV have been shows that I've watched by myself. Like, my deepest connection is probably to the first couple seasons of America's Next Top Model. And I really don't remember having anyone at my sides that I could like yell to about how excited I was that this person was winning and that person was losing. I was recently looking up some of the contestants and it's so weird how deep it feels. Like they feel like acquaintances or old friends that I had and I'm still kind of hoping that their trajectory continues and that they're doing well. And that is the perfect way to get into the first question that I want to pose to you all, which is, what is it about the cast and the characters that makes these shows so important? There are archetypes. We get attached to these people. What are the characters to reality TV? I can relate to that because I went back last night to real world New Orleans. Which is classic. So it's like a classic real world. I think it was uh, 2000. So I went back and I looked because I remembered that I really liked this dynamic between Melissa, who was a uh, mixed race. I think her mother was Filipino and her dad was black. Uh, and Jamie, who was like this real like uh, late 90s looking white dude. I don't know, with kind of like <laughs> floppy hair and a real cute dimple and everything. <laughs> um, and all the clips that I found were of like this other character, Julie, who was blonde and Mormon kind of seducing. And she cried all the time. <laughs> yes. Poor Julie. And so she was seducing Jamie and Melissa was just the fun flirt who wasn't taken seriously. And it broke my heart rewatching this because for some reason I had this affinity for Melissa all these years just in the back of my mind. And I don't know what it is, but I feel as an adult now like that I do relate to her more and like I'm a little offended by the way that Julie is. So maybe part of it is like seeing another expression of yourself in these characterizations or these, I mean, back then it felt really real, especially the way they shot it. It felt like this is really who that person is. Oh, absolutely. And because the real world is from 92, it was one of the first, if not the first, mm -hmm. reality TV show where it was I like... I think it's the first where it like takes place in a house. Yeah, the first kind of modern style reality TV show where it's seven strangers picked to live in a loft. <laughs> Actually, the first, what's considered the first reality show, um, I believe it's called An American Family. They um, they followed this family, and they were supposed to be kind of like the quintessential like nuclear family, like middle class, this whole thing. And uh, uh, obviously, reality TV comes from documentary. I mean, it's they're closely tied together, and some shows are much more documentary driven. And it's interesting how that early on, even in the '70s, there was this fascination with 
just like average people or even going back to like Warhol really and like the 15 minutes of fame like get in my studio sit against the wall I'm just gonna film you as and you, you as you and yeah. you're just gonna sit there and be you and that is fascinating well I think and Allegra touched on this as part of what's fascinating as the viewer is you're trying to parse out who these people are in like real life based on the persona that is put forth in reality TV it's like we want to know so badly like who are you really who is Julie mm -hmm. who is Jamie who are these people and how true is how they're being portrayed well, in the show to like them walking down the street, like living actual life. And I think early on we trusted reality television a lot more and we believed that these were really it. These were the people, these were the decisions they were making. And we weren't quite as aware of the manipulations and edits that were involved in reality television. Like we're a little more skeptical now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think right now and uh, over the past few years, there's been a big boost in what they call soft scripted reality. I think it started with Laguna Beach, um, which was sort of like the real OC. And then that became, you know, Lauren Conrad was sort of like the breakout star from that. So they said, let's give her own show. She wants to get into fashion in L.A. So that became The Hills. And then you had, of course, a city spinoff from that. And then at the same time, you have the emergence of like the Kardashian family. Uh, I, have, I know people that have worked on some of those shows, and they've all told me that they do things multiple times, they write scripts ahead of time, they say, they'll find out things that they loosely have on their agenda, and then they'll shape it into, okay, here's the drama, this is what we're going for. And then you can kind of tell when you watch those shows, you can kind of tell when something is like an authentic moment versus mm -hmm. like a sort of rehearsed scripted moment. I don't know, at least I feel like I can. When you are casting for a reality show, are you looking for somebody who is a good actor who will be able to carry off that soft script? How important is that? Well, I actually have not worked on something that's been soft scripted. I mean, I potential contestants always ask me this too. They say, what are you going to make me look like? How are you going to shape me? Like, am I going to be the bitch? I bet, I'm the bitch, aren't I? I could tell you want me because I'm going to be the bitch. <laughs> I I'm bet people like, weren't asking that like five years ago. Right. I really have to had to sue them. And at first, you know, because I was new, I was like, am I like lying to them? Like, is this what really happens? You know? But then when I actually walked through the process and, you know, I'm reviewing cuts that are about to air and I'm like, oh, actually our company handles things with such sensitivity. The production is very much about documenting. So then we'll plan a bio package, which is a sort of lingo for like presenting who they are on the show. Background. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll plan a background type shoot based on the things that she's told us she's into. But that's about as, it, as far as it goes. And so that was really refreshing. And I was able to say with confidence to them, look, if you're worried about being the bitch on the show, don't be a bitch, like, you know, or, or say your opinion. Do you, do you literally say that? I have. I've said, look, if you're worried about that, just be as honest as you can, but there's ways to say things. And this is, here's a lesson moment. Here's a lesson from reality. All right, let's okay, I've got a lesson it. right here. Think about how you're being portrayed in general, right? On TV or in day-to-day -day living, right? It's hard sometimes to get outside of yourself and be thinking about how am I coming across? Like, you have to think about in every interaction, I'm going to be seen in a certain way. And I think that, you know, with TV, that's definitely heightened. But really, there's a way to say something. Like, if, if you don't like something, be honest about why you don't like it. But you can say it in a way that's not going to make you seem like you're going for the jugular, you know? Mm -hmm. That's a good lesson. Thanks. Do you find that shows need that animosity driving character because they're fun to watch because they're over the top or is it not every reality show needs 
the bitch or, you know, the person who's going to create the drama. The villain. The villain, yeah. It depends on the show. I mean, there are times when somebody is a little bit more high drama, and obviously that makes for good television. But with our format, you know, with with Four Weddings format, we looked for people that were, that had opinions and were excited about their own style or their own uh, wedding. And we would cast weddings that were very different from each other. We're not going to have everybody doing the big giant reception hall in New Jersey and spending $200,000. Like, that's not going to be interesting. So we have different budgets. Someone's a DIY bride. Like, somebody's, you know, coming from this perspective and that perspective. So they have opinions about why what they're doing is very good and interesting and maybe the other person isn't their taste. So that inherently when you cast people that are different is going to create those clashes, but I don't think you necessarily need a villain depending on the format. But I do think that sometimes shows definitely look for that person that's going to be the fly in the ointment. And when you were talking about telling these women like, you know, if you don't want to be the bitch, don't be the bitch. Something that's bringing up for me is these sort of like personal storytelling things like the moth and story core that people are almost like, you know, unanimously like these are really special and we love this. Um, the thing about these shows, like I was an intern at StoryCorps and my first exercise, my first day was like, take this 40 minute interview, which StoryCorps does like these interviews between two people. They put them in a room and have them interview each other for 40 minutes. So as, as the production intern, they give me that tape and they give me a script typed out and say, match this script. And I literally have to move around like ands and ors and sentences from here to there wow. and breaths and pauses. And that like burst my bubble completely. So now I'm like, well, that's just as highly manipulated. And I know the moth can be too, because they have these people who train for months to tell a, a good story with a director. That's just as highly manipulated as some of these shows. And why is it that people want to believe, you know, if it comes from NPR, it's more pure or like more real than if it's a reality show? And we have to feel like guilty about how produced this reality show is. We're talking about like simulated reality. Like, where does that difference actually exist? Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, there is that slight feeling of disappointment when you realize oh, this story that somebody's telling on stage or this moment in a TV show, a reality TV show, that feels so effortless and feels so natural has a lot of planning that's gone into that. Like, a lot of work goes into making something seem totally spontaneous. And that's just the way it is. But it's kind of, it hurts a little to find that out, to realize that there is this level of artifice. And really quickly about um, the editing of the like, confessionals and the editing of voiceover, I never have heard it as bad and as choppy as I do on my favorite show. And actually the only show that I watch on television right now, period, which is RuPaul's Drag Race. And maybe it's because I'm an audio producer and I like hear it, but the audio editing is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the breaths are all over the place. Sentences, like, you know, when you cut somebody in the middle of a sentence, their voice maybe changes a little bit in how they're starting a sentence. But I love it because that show is all about crashing illusion and putting illusion right up front and it goes right down to the shoddy editing, which I love. So anyway, Rachel, you had something to say. <coughs> oh yeah. I love that too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that on the bachelor i love that on all of those shows <laughs> right and that's a big thing in, in reality tv and in editing and tv in general i mean you're looking for these bites right and some people 
I think probably being in radio and having done this podcast, you're probably very aware of that even naturally, just like, I like to make a complete sentence now because I know that that's going to play better and it's going to, when I'm maybe shaping this at some point, that's going to make sense. Yeah, it's weird to go back when you're editing yourself to realize that you do not talk in full sentences. You'll start a sentence and then abandon it and go to something else. So yeah, you kind of learn over time how to speak in a complete sentence and it's totally unnatural. <laughs> exactly. I mean, a lot of, it's happening to me right now, a lot of thoughts form, you, you may think in your brain that you have a thought formed, but as you speak it, then it forms and so you take a different direction. That plus, I bet you anything, not to make assumptions, but on RuPaul's Drag Race, I bet there's a lot of fast talkers. So if you have people doing that, <laughs> plus they're like, and then, and then, and then, and then. So you've got these amazing personalities, right, who are probably just popping on camera and you're like, oh my god, this is freaking TV gold. I mean, that's what that show is, right? It's like personality after personality. I mean, how do you even edit that down? I can't even imagine being an editor on that show. Those producers, or the editors, are brilliant. Yes, exactly. But in those instances, you're going to have to do um, what we would call Frankenbites, which is like, oh, we need a bite out of this, but the emotion's there, the performance is there, everything's there, but they're like, and, 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 uh, 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 and you just have to find a way to trim it down and try to make sense out of it. I have a clip to share with you guys of just one of a million examples of this, but here's uh, Adore Delano from this past season. My name is Adore Delano, I'm 23 years old. And I'm a fucking Libra. For all the queens telling me that I'm not polished enough, I just want them to know that I'm polished remover, bitch. <laughs> I guess we'll be marking this episode as explicit. <laughs> polished remover, bitch, is one of my favorite lines from the whole season because I know whatever producer was interviewing Adore at that moment was like, bam. There's our bite. There's our Franken bite. Mm -hmm. I think the reality has become something where we expect and want that highly edited product. And I think the reason that The Bachelor and Bachelorette work so well is that the editors play with that fakeness a lot and we really enjoy it as the audience. So we like really enjoy those awkward pauses and the weird formal like uh, hi, you're looking great tonight. Like, that's not a normal <laughs> conversation and you know it. Whereas, like, back in the day on the real world, you felt like you were just in one camera, like, viewing within the same room as the action was happening. Mm. But now, with these, like, highly produced shows, I think we kind of, as viewers, enjoy the over-editing and kind of, like, just relish it. It's become a totally different product, you know? Which actually... um not to just keep going on and on, but I think is a good segue to the whole Burning Love parody. Um, because uh, in the season two of Burning Love, which is a show uh, that was made for Yahoo, uh, it's produced by Ben Stiller, actually, and it's a lot of members of the state and different people in the comedy world. Like all of your favorite comedians are in it. Yes. Season two especially is a, a, a woman named June Allison, I want to say. Is oh, June first? Diane Raphael. June Diane Raphael, Of yes. the uh, How Did This Get Made podcast. She's really great. So she's playing the Bachelorette character, and then you've got like Michael Sarah and Paul Rudd Jerry O'Connell, Paul yeah. Rudd, yeah, it's like all Every these amazing comedian. Andy Samberg, I think. Burning Love compiles all those interesting characters and moments of, you know, the 18 seasons of Bachelor and Bachelorette, and just pulls the good parts, heightens them, and takes out the boring bits. I don't know that you could really enjoy Burning Love without having some context or affection for the real thing. Like, I would be so curious if there are people who are watching Burning Love and don't even know 
that it's a comedy. I wonder if we should take a lesson from this situation of like the fact that now we're in a place where an entire comedy series can exist just from little nuances in these dating reality shows. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what it is in me, but I'll I'll put on the bachelor bachelorette when I'm working out or whatever. I'm I'm just curious though. I just have to know like what draws you to that show and what makes you so excited about it? Because it seems like, are you like a secret, like real romantic? Like, is it, I feel like so much of that show is about know. people really it's feeling weird, in love. I never watched it before, but part of it like connects me to mainstream culture. So I like that. And then I kind of like the idea that maybe some of these people really do buy into it. Um, because the, there's a lot of language used in the show about like believing in the process and the um, process of falling in love the process of the show oh as if like the show has created this um this new process the same as maybe like tinder or e-harmony or something like the bachelor is like one new manifestation of finding a is it like of your life religious or scientific like um it's not clear <laughs> like that's not part of it but just that like hey this has worked for some people if you buy into it and you want to be on the show and believe that it could work for you then you should and then some of the people on the show are like you know they grapple with that they're like oh man i thought i would believe in this process but i don't and then other people are like yeah, you know what, if this is meant to be, like, this will help me find the love of my life. Huh. So I kind of, like, I kind of like that there are people who are like, hey, this is a legitimate way to find love. And and the, the show is very, like, self-reflective about that. So there's a, there's a, even though it does feel very produced in some ways, which I feel like you also kind of take comfort in. Because they're, like, yeah. guiding you through, oh, I right? Enjoy, like, I enjoy the weird, awkward, unreal parts of it, too, but... Yeah, in the way that I enjoy, like, a good, bad rom-com. You know, like, I'll yes. watch Two Weeks Notice or something. Like, Sandra Bullock and Hugh yeah. Grant. And I'm like, how am I watching? Okay, I'm still watching this. <laughs> but okay. you know, like, all the points that it's going to hit. There's comfort in that familiarity in yes. knowing where the story's going to go. It yeah. feels good to you. Because mm. you get it. It gets you. It's very symbiotic. There are people who are going to be questioning the process. And that's fun and interesting to watch. And then there's the people that are going to be like, you know what, I'm at this point in my life and I really want to fall in love and I'm just going to go with it. That's totally it. Yeah. And the host is really key in like guiding that questioning. He's like, are you here for, for what we do? Because this is what we do. If you're not here for this, then like you shouldn't be here. Right. So you guys have answered a question that I have, which was, why would somebody want to go on a reality show in the first place? Mm -hmm. Okay. I get it. It makes sense. Fame, love, money attention. But kind of on the flip side of that, if you are making a reality TV show, what is your responsibility as the person in the casting seat to these people who vie for this love and this fame and this money? Rachel knows. I don't know how all companies work. We were really open mm -hmm. with, with people about what the commitment was like and what they were going to, what the experience was going to be like for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So making sure that the contestants are on board with what they're about to go through. Mm-hmm. Part of the application process is actually filling out what, what we call an FCRA. So that's a background check. Because you're not going to be like, here's this $10,000 prize if you were like a murderer. Or like, I mean, that sounds terrible. But even just like a violent crime, it would be like, sorry. I mean, it's like, you know, we're making television here. We shouldn't be creating threatening situations, especially for women. Yeah. You know? But I feel like even if the person doesn't have a criminal record, like 
it's a tense situation and you're trying to get people to have strong reactions, like you were saying. So even if a person hasn't committed assaults, they might be a little unstable and this situation might bring out their more aggressive, crazy self. What happens when people behave a certain way on TV and then later can see themselves and process that behavior? I imagine Um, if you're a contestant, it is strange to have, at least in the 90s before Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, it was weird to have a visual document of who you were at a particular time and place, mostly in your early 20s, being plied with alcohol, making dumb decisions for the entertainment of all of us. So it must be suggestions of producers. Exactly. So it must be totally strange to have that and like know that your kids are going to see it or, you know, or know that your family will see it. And that is who you were at that time forever. Versus now when we're all creating our own sort of reality show style personalities using Facebook and Vimeo and whatever else. That was really new at the time, but like, I feel like as a result of watching these shows and growing up in like a more media PR conscious world, we now create our own characters. But I think it still exists because like one of my favorite things to watch is the reunion show at the end of a season, Mm -hmm. especially the competition shows, you know? People have, it's become this phrase of, I'm not here to make friends, I'm here to win. (laughs) And that's become like such a funny phrase that everybody knows. It's a mantra. It's a mantra. But I think that, you know, people see themselves in a different light. And sometimes you see this really honest moment of reflection, like, yeah, I don't like that I was portrayed that way. That is one of the other things that I love about RuPaul's Drag Race, which is, It is all about artifice and illusion because drag is all about playing with artifice and illusion. And RuPaul puts all the sponsorship opportunities right up front. You know, other shows will kind of sneak uh, product placement into the background. They'll kind of slip it in. Often poorly. They'll pretend it's not really there. Yeah. Um, RuPaul, there's the Scruff Pit crew. There is the, in past seasons, the AllenChuck.Travel. Like, they repeated the names of their sponsors every single show ad nauseum. Because the whole idea is, if someone's paying me for this, I'm gonna do it. And it was like, a girl's gotta make a living, gotta pay your rent, gotta eat. Why pretend that that's not the case? So I love that show for laying it all out there and being really honest with the fact that everybody's gotta eat and not being ashamed that like, yeah, someone's paying me to say this name, I'm gonna say it, and then I'm gonna have dinner on the table. Like, that is (laughs) real life right there. I think it's really fun to see which type of show or which show is kind of (laughs) exciting each person, you know? And um, I would like to just take a moment to plug my favorite show at the moment. It's called American Ninja Warrior. And I remember stumbling upon it one day, flipping channels, and I was like, what is this crazy, like, double dare for adults? Like, in Japan, at Mount Midoriyama, only the Japanese have managed to conquer the ultimate course, but no American has ever defeated Mount Midoriyama. You know, and so I'm just like, Are you what a the voiceover heck? artist? Oh, you're, that was really good. I'm not, but I just know that I'm like, Mount Midoriyama? What? And you see there's, like, flames, and there's this, like, tower. No girl has ever even completed the first phase of the course. Wow. So we can get into the club. 
I'm five foot even, which is pretty short compared to the other guys out there. And I think that it definitely is a disadvantage in some ways because, you know, the reaches and the lengths and things like that are, are that much further for me. But, you know, I've been small my whole life and I've never let that hold me back before. And I'm definitely not going to start now. Can she be the first woman ever to do it in competition? As a smaller woman. As a smaller woman. At five feet tall, she has a lot of distance to cover with her small stride. This is one of the only places that her weight is a disadvantage. Just 100 pounds, but all of it muscle. Five feet tall. A person's wingspan is about the same as their height, so Casey can only reach out about five feet from the end of one outstretched arm to the other. She's only five feet tall. That means the warp wall is almost three times taller than her. all of the ladies out there. We can do it too, everyone. Don't ever be discouraged, get out there and go hard. That was so inspirational. For those who hate on reality TV, you cannot deny that you get so emotionally wrapped up in what's going on. Like you want a hundred pound, five foot Casey to win this. Allegra and Rachel, you were saying it's all about the backstory. Bio is huge, and uh, and presenting that backstory um, that gets you invested is huge. Um, but what I love in particular about uh, American Ninja Warrior is just that that happens at a much greater speed. The pace is very much about, like, how can we present this information to you that's going to get you to root for this person super quickly? And then the stakes are that much higher. Because the stakes in an obstacle course are always going to be high, but if there's some sort of like emotional connection to that person, it gets even higher. So I find that they do it really well. And they really struck gold in this scenario because they had a contestant who had been on several times before, who had made it very far in, in the course. And that's even another element about it too that's interesting is that uh, you can try to attempt this course multiple, multiple times, and as soon as you fail, you're out. So then you always have to start over again. Mm -hmm. So you'll see reoccurring people and reoccurring characters that you'll, you're automatically invested in because you remember them from past seasons, and they present that backstory really quickly to you, and you're like, oh, not only has this guy been on the show a bunch of times and tried a bunch of times, but now he's trained his protege, and she's five foot tall, and a woman has never completed the course. Like, so... <laughs> They'll sort of angle for anything different about that person so that you're invested in that way. And that's why I can get into reality shows that are really bad, like uh, the Cupcake Wars or something, <laughs> because of these great bio packages where just for like 30 seconds you're immersed in this person's world and you're like, okay, you have to win because I want you to <laughs> succeed so badly. But in addition to characters and casting, another question that I was going to pose to all of you is about the story and storytelling. And Allegra, you came to reality TV from being fascinated by this angle. And a lot of the, a lot of what makes the story fascinating, which is what you're gunning for in a reality TV show of any kind, a competition show, a dating show, a slice of life show, a wedding show, whatever. It's all about the story that you're creating. And that's what sucks us in. And so I, I wanted to show you guys this clip from Survivor Blood versus Water. So the concept for this season of Survivor was a little bit different. This time they took uh, veterans from the show and one family member. So each veteran had either a partner or a friend or family member join them. 
So it kind of, it set up like all these really strange dynamics between like mothers and daughters. And the most captivating to me were, were these two brothers, Aris and Vitas. Aris had won Survivor before he had won the million dollars, and Vitas was a recovering heroin addict. So the clip that I want to show you guys is just, it was so striking in like the emotion that it captured between these two brothers and their entire history together, um, that it was like unlike anything I'd seen, especially on Survivor. Aris slowly trying to inch his brother off this platform. Aris has beat it, then he's in! His older brother takes down the bully. Galang leads four, three. So, Aris, what does that feel like right now? It feels bad. You know, I love him more than anybody else. He's my brother, and I don't want to fight against him. I, I, we've done it enough, but, but I'm proud I beat him. I mean, he's a college athlete. I'm the jump, but you know, I was so happy to go up against him. But I tried my hardest. I'm proud of him. Oh my god, I'm tearing up. I'm tearing up right now. It was so beautiful. You have these brothers talking about their relationships growing up, and it's such a visceral moment to like fight it out. And you've got it's it's so intense and and like beautiful in a way that. Uh, survivor usually isn't. You know, the next scene, which I didn't include here, but is a mother and daughter, and it's emotional too, you know? It's like, the mother wins, but she doesn't want to beat her daughter. They're actually, the next season of Survivor is going to be blood versus water again. Because hmm. um, it was so impactful to see human relationships off screen, like brought onto screen in a competitive situation. This is a type of entertainment that reaches a lot of different people. P different people relate to it because it, if, it, if it's doing it well and it's not too overproduced where these moments are being squelched out and people are allowed to kind of be themselves, you're really getting these little windows onto actual people. Yeah. You know, and, and for me, I actually find it less junk food entertainment than, say, um, you know, some of, some of these very formulaic scripted sitcoms and things. Cause it's like with those shows, I'm like, uh, I'm going to get this canned laughter here. I'm going to get this joke here. You get the naggy wife and the schlumpy dad who, right. who's irresponsible. And it's like the same stock characters over and over again. Exactly. And you definitely get some of that with reality too. But with real people, if, if the producers are doing a good job and the show is doing a good job, you're going to get these realistic moments happening that aren't going to happen in a but scripted situation. You probably wouldn't be doubting yourself as much if you were working on like a home repair reality show versus one that's about weddings. I think part of it is also just like the guilt of this being a traditional femme-centric sort of thing. Like weddings, as much as our culture is obsessed with them, we also think of them as this frivolous thing. Definitely. And also, um, my coworker recently brought up, you know, uh, wedding shows are very typically pushed aside and thought of as typical female program, women's programming. Yeah, geared you know? toward women, as opposed to, like you were saying, this ninja show, which is kind of geared towards men. Mm -hmm. Or even the home makeover shows is like a guy is going to be tearing apart a wall and there's going to be something that's going to appeal to a guy. Whereas like when you have a wedding show, you're pretty much sure that the bulk of the demographic is women getting married or their moms or something. And so, yeah, there's something 
to get a little personal here, my mom's been married a bunch of times, my dad too, like come from broken homes. So I was never like, yeah, I'm a dream wedding, like <laughs> picturing my wedding dress. I was never one of those girls. So to work on one of those shows, I was like, how can this be interesting? Okay, let me think about it in a historical context. Weddings have happened for generations and they happen worldwide. And in this country, there's a lot of money being put into them, even by people that don't have the money. And there's something interesting in that. And the pride that certain women take in their wedding day and as their day to shine and really, you know, maybe women that don't even feel deserving of that kind of attention being like, well, but on my wedding day I do. So getting to work on that show actually was really valuable to me. Even though it was a competition show, what I took a lot of pride in is women never talked about each other's bodies. There was never any takedowns of how women looked. Huh. Um, it was very egalitarian in a way, and there was a lot of empathy. I think you touched upon empathy earlier as like wanting to identify with people that you're watching and their backstory and everything. You're getting at something that kind of has grounded like all of our defenses of, of reality show, which is like, it feels really good to feel compassionate or empathetic to another human being that surprises you. And it's the same reason that we like watch documentaries and listen to stories on public radio is like, we want to feel this warmth towards someone that's a stranger to us and that kind of like opens our world a little bit. I'm sort of obsessed with a reality show character who tries to fight or like at least contradict the fact that they're on a reality show. Like Elise from the first season of America's Next Top Model, who has continued to be my favorite person and I like keep checking in with her online because she apparently signed up on a whim at the mall and throughout the season kept emphasizing that like, you know, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to go to graduate school and become a professor, which is what I'm really interested in anyway. At the end of the season, Tyra is like, models have to be smart as well, right? It's not just about the face. And Elise is like, no, I disagree. It's still about the chemistry and your <laughs> DNA and the way your facial features are distributed. And, <laughs> and she went on to be one of the most successful people from that show. She still models in Hong Kong. Whereas a lot of the other winners, she wasn't even a winner, she was like third runner-up, haven't made it that far. I love that so much. Like, I love those outliers who are like, eh, just doing it for fun. I don't really belong here. Everyone here is a bitch. <laughs> like, um, And the winner of Drag Race this year is Bianca Del Rio, who is like an 18-year veteran and comes in like the, the queen of mean, the Don Rickles of drag, and is like <laughs> such a bitch, but you find out throughout the season that she has a heart of gold and ends up helping out the younger queens and sort of like being a mother and a role model to them and is already a successful costume designer and she's just, you cannot help but fall in love with her and of course she wins and deserves to. So that makes everybody happy. Love that. Let's watch it. This is my clip of Elise towards the end. I tried out for this on just a total whim. They had the audition at this silly little place, which was right by my house, and like, you know, I, I just, I thought it'd be fun. Early on, you were like, being a top model is just strictly physical. You said that myself, Cindy Crawford, Heidi Klum, other top models, that the only reason why we were top models is that we were the best physically looking models in the world, and I disagreed with you. I don't know, I don't think there's really a lot of merits that one can have outside of the physical, and I think I have those. You don't think there's someone else, anything outside of the physical that makes a supermodel? I don't think so, no. You've had a lot of estrogen in your development. It creates a certain sort of facial features, and that's a small jaw, wider set eyes, bigger lips, 
smaller ears, a smaller brow ridge. I feel like Tyra is defending her show to Elise. In this I moment. feel like I have yeah. estrogen deficiency when I was an infant after hearing that. What are you talking about? You have big eyes and a small jaw, so shut up. <laughs> you gotta soften up your look a little bit. Um, my coworker brought this to my attention, that Mother Jones article about this show called Call of the Wild Man for Animal Planet. It's about sort of like a humane pest control expert in the South, I believe. Um, I mean, the article starts with the fact that there's these baby raccoons who are brought into a wildlife rescue center and they're emaciated and they're not in a typical state you would find these baby raccoons. and. Oh. They started digging and saying, why are they looking like this? They don't look like they normally would look if they were found directly from the wild. And it came to light that the producers, they, would, they didn't have enough cases to film in the time that they needed to film for this exterminator. So they were hiring people to trap wild animals and put them in people's homes. Oh, my God. And not only that, which is very illegal, they were having sometimes an associate producer like keep some of these animals like in their hotel rooms. For instance, <laughs> oh these baby God. raccoons for days on end. To me, this is an extreme case of how the industry can function with this illusion of reality and then behind the scenes is like this horror show. I yeah. mean, and so yeah. apparently they're everyone's changing their practices now and they're hiring animal handlers for all these shows and you know, there's a lot more light shone upon it. These behind-the-scenes tidbits are so fascinating and sometimes shocking. I don't know much about it, but I've heard a lot of problems with the fact that, like, the reality show cast members aren't unionized and they are kind of <laughs> taken advantage of and mm. people are making money off of others in a really, like, despicable way. So well, it's, it's like when you participate on most reality shows, as far as I understand, you're, like... You're not allowed to have communication with the outside world. Like, your cell phone is taken away. You're not really allowed to, like, email, whatever. And it, like, yeah, puts you in a really compromising spot. An unrealistic spot. Yeah. I'm thinking of, like, Project Runway oh, or, yeah. like, America's Next Top Model, things like that. A show, a show where you are like, living in a place for many weeks. When you walk into a room, <laughs> do you, like, see people as certain reality show types or what types would we be <laughs> i think when i walk into a room i genuinely just see characters in people in general not even in reality but i often am thinking about you know my own projects or other people's projects i kind of tend to file people's faces away for like for future use you know because there's times when i've done an independent film and there's such a specific character that i think an actor is actually not even the right person. Like I think of a real person that is closer to that person. Mm -hmm. So when I think about people, when I meet them, I just think of how everyone has their own character. When we're casting reality shows, I mean, you're looking for the people that have distinct voices mm -hmm. that are who they are and are able to articulate who they are and their point of view and, and pop really. And I guess, you know, that, that, that borders on the intangible, like what makes someone pop on TV. And that's something that I've seen um, come up in conversations during different judgments on different shows. It's like you have to make the most of yourself and like see what makes you interesting and unique and like you. bring that out and try to use that versus like trying to imitate a certain type. Mm. So comparisons to current or past reality stars don't come to mind for any of us in particular? <laughs> 
Ah, oh, that's tough. <laughs> I don't know. I, now I just keep thinking of you guys as your favorite show. So I'm like, she needs to go on The Bachelor. Allegra. You definitely need to go on America's Next Top Model. Ksenia. And um, and you need to go on RuPaul's Drag Race. I'm going to be a drag queen. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm seeing right now. <laughs> and for me, I think I genuinely need to start training for um, American Ninja Warrior, like, immediately. Clearly. So. Clearly. Passion is fascinating. And to dissect the reason why somebody has a passion for something is where the story is. And one thing that we really want to hear from you guys, our listeners, is what makes reality TV powerful and watchable to you? And what do you feel like you can learn from it? Because there's probably one show, or maybe it's 20 shows that you watch. Maybe you tell your friends about it. Maybe nobody knows. Um, but there's something in it, whether it's the storytelling, it's the human experience on screen, it's watching people strive to figure out who they are, how to be themselves that is drawing you in. So um, please come to our Facebook page um, at Bonnie and Maud and tell us what shows fascinate you and what you've maybe seen in them. Or you can tweet at us at Bonnie and Maud. That's our Twitter handle. Or email us at bonnieandmaud at gmail.com. Allegra, Rachel, thank you guys so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. It's been a pleasure. I've had such a great time. Thank you so much. And, you know, as we're wrapping up this episode, I do want to point out that there is, of course, artifice in podcasting as well. This is its own form of reality in which I am going to sit down and edit this conversation from two hours. May as well be honest with the listeners. From two hours is how long we have chatted today to something a little bit shorter, which is what you're hearing now. So that is the artifice and illusion and reality that we're sharing with you. And uh, oh, shattered. <laughs> So thanks for listening. I'm Eleanor Kagan. And I'm Xenia Yarosh. And this has been Bonnie and Maud. Thanks. Wanna be a star? We'll just lower the bar. Humiliation becomes routine. What you're playing out on your D.